Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Tomorrow is election day. It's election day tomorrow. I just did Carnegie Hall. I, I'm I'm looking to the future for the country, and I'm looking to a tremendous career and personal achievement just two days ago. Uh, my cat LaFonda was in trouble. There's a, there's a, a, a jumble of things that I need to share with you. But let's start with this. Tomorrow's election day. Go do your civic duty. Go go be part of democracy. Go and vote. You know the right vote to make for yourself. I personally, I prefer the person who's had a lifetime of experience working towards being able to do and and do well the upper management position of president of the United States. I think that you should vote for that person, not the impulsive, mentally ill, self-centered liar. Because if you are still thinking that that person is the right person to lead our country, I think you're probably fundamentally un-American and don't really have a sense of how democracy works or what democracy is or what personal freedom is, and what the country should really look like and how it should progress. But that's just my feelings. I don't like to be biased, but I stand by my belief that if you vote for that guy, you're a sucker and a moron. There's no other way to look at it. And I know you've all made your decisions, and maybe you're thinking I'm, I'm being too abusive or, or I'm not being tolerant of other views. I'm fine you're fine. We're all people. Most of us are decent people. Just try to pull your head out of your ass if you're thinking of voting for that idiot. It's embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And before I forget, uh, there's no third party in America. That's not how the uh, system is structured. There isn't a third party. There may be, there could be. But uh, why don't you work on that on the downtime? in between presidential elections. You can use that time to start getting behind candidates on local and state levels if you want to try to have a third-party foothold. Don't just all of a sudden decide every four years that you're going to vote for any idiot who represents something different because you don't like the other two. There's no third party. Pick a team. All right? The Cubs and the Indians. 
right? They were in the World Series. On that last game, no one was rooting for the Yankees. You dig? All right. Again, I don't love my tone when I'm in this place, but it's tomorrow. Now, let's move on to other things. So, And do the other voting, too. Vote for the numbers and the other people on the ballot. The vestiges of democracy exist. They're always there to be brought back to life. There is always hope. I am not cynical. But do not, if you can, help yourself vote a fucking lunatic into the White House. A fucking lunatic. I don't care what you think about criminal this, criminal that. Vote for the person that can do the job. It's a big job to be middle, you know, global middle management. You got to be able to function as a person to do the job, to maintain a functioning country, not a dysfunctional person who is a lying sack of shit, who is bankrupt morally and psychologically. But again, I don't want to get anyone upset. We're all people. We're good people. Americans uh, are are all entitled to their opinion and to their vote, and you do it by yourself in that booth. You do it by yourself in that booth for a couple of reasons, right? So you don't have to tell anybody because a lot of you are going to do the wrong thing, and you might hang around people who are more reasonable and and, uh, level-headed. So you're hedging your bets by not talking and going in there quietly voting for the wrong person. So just maybe... If we all end up standing behind the same fence, wearing the same outfit, when someone goes, who the fuck voted for this guy? You want to be able to go, I don't know, right? It's fucking crazy. Where in your heart, you thought you'd be wearing the other uniform. Little extreme, but God bless America. So onward, vote. Next, next up. Oh, well... I, I, I did it. Can I talk about my personal achievements? It was pretty uh, pretty amazing, pretty overwhelming. I performed at Carnegie Hall in New York City on Friday, November 4th, 2016. I had my friend Nate Bargetzi open for me. I did a two-hour show. It's a little longer than they expected. Uh, not the crowd, but the venue and the festival. Kind of rushed the after party a bit with all of my old Jewish relatives and uh, different representatives of... Uh, of mine, uh, but uh, but but that that's not the point. The point is is that I'll tell you exactly how it went. I got to be honest with you. It wasn't so much that I was nervous. I mean, I'm at a point where I'm not afraid to do stand up. But but there was something about Carnegie Hall and something about New York City and something about the opportunity and something about the reality of it that was that was hitting all the triggers. Just sort of like, nah, I'm not worthy. I don't know if I can do it. What if I buckle? My vessel was shaking. My vessel was shaking. Do you understand? the The ship was uh, was was. I was I was going through turbulence, heading into New York. I didn't bring anyone with me. I told Sarah she couldn't come because I just I needed. I didn't want to worry about anything but doing that show. And I got to New York. I didn't do anything differently. Than I usually do. I checked into the hotel. I went to Veselka. I had some borscht. I went over my notes. I, I was keeping it loose like I usually do. I knew I had some big set pieces. I knew there was a lot of things I wanted to say. I knew I could stand up there for you know two to three hours. I just wanted it to be good, but I wasn't sure uh, as of Thursday night exactly what I was going to be opening with. I was easy, I was even writing new jokes and putting uh, callbacks together, adding things. Uh, in my mind, on my notes, Thursday night, Friday morning, I'm up. You know, I'm 
I'm trying not to freak out. My mom's going to be there. I'm just trying to take it easy doing the New York thing. The weather is beautiful. It's just gorgeous out. Perfect fall day. I'm only allowing a couple of people to come backstage if they want to come backstage. I just want it to be me and another comic, Nate, backstage. I don't want any management. I don't want any family. I don't want nobody. But I wanted Sharpwing there. I needed Tom Sharpwing in the room because he grounds me, makes me laugh. Uh, I, you know, We're kindred spirits. I just like having him around, so I asked him to please come backstage. So it was just me, Nate Bargetsy, Tom Sharpwing, backstage at Carnegie Hall when we go out there to, to, to do that sound check. And I got to tell you, man, that stage is gorgeous. That room is gorgeous, obviously. Obviously. You know, we're just sitting back there. Nate decides to pull up a, a list of everyone who's performed there, which doesn't always help. It doesn't, doesn't always help to see the, the, the legends that you're going to have to fill the same space as they did. But, you know, Nate and I walk out there, and it's a theater. And I've done theaters before, and it's beautifully structured. There's a nice rounded element to it. There's many tiers to the balcony, but somehow it still feels intimate. And I had that moment where I stopped freaking out, and I, and I stood there, and I'm like, oh, I can do this. this is, I live up here. I live on these stages. This is, it's just a theater on some level. My friend Don, even trying to make me feel better, he told me, like, if there's any way I can level your expectation, uh, you know, my mom was in a barbershop uh, quartet that uh, won, came in second place in a contest, and she performed there. And he said, they're just happy you're going to sell the place out. And then I started to think about it. I mean, how many of those classical events really do sell out? How much action does Carnegie Hall, you know, really see? But that, why would I be doing that? What do I got to diminish in order to feel good? better why can't i just why couldn't why couldn't i be an alchemist that transforms dread and anxiety into excitement and joy that was that was really the experiment at hand but checking the sound you felt the weight of the place it was empty but it felt like a special place but i felt like i got this i can do this i've been doing this more than half of my fucking life so nate goes out there kills it does a beautiful 15 minutes and he brings me on, folks. He brings me on. And, you know, the acoustics in that place, the sound of it, the history of it, all of it, everything that that got me there and everything that that, that place represents and everything that everyone in that room represents, all 2,600 of them that came to see me. They're applauding. And I get out there and I'm just shattered just shattered like just overwhelmed with emotion and i just felt it in my whole body just this rupture beginning to happen and i had to get hold of myself i was like there's no crying we don't open the carnegie hall show with crying i said to me from the inside that is not how this is gonna go i mean i don't mind crying god knows i've been talking about it for a while having it happen but i just, even even if they understood i don't want to start in that place i got to pull it together god damn it and i felt that happening i was on stage and then you know i took my my stool i sat in my stool i took my seat and i started to talk but i was very emotional and i wasn't really connecting and i was trying to feel the room trying to feel how do i connect with this room and you know and i and i and i felt the emotions and i felt the insecurity and i felt you know the the, the the weight of not really preparing how I was going to open clearly. It was all there. But you know what all those things did? All those things that the emotions, the insecurity, the uh, the not knowing, 
it fucking it just grounded me right there in the goddamn present on that stage sitting on a stool in Carnegie Hall in that big vast empty stage that is Carnegie Hall nothing else but me in a stool and a mic stand I don't know what happened but I I broke it open I felt the love of my fans I felt the room and then I just locked in and I kind of had these a couple of out of body experiences where I'm like you're in it dude you're just look at you on stage at Carnegie Hall I think I even stopped and said you know I'm gonna feel great about this my mother was in the room a lot of other relatives uh, old friends and uh, I, I just stayed up there and I improvised and I did the jokes I wanted to do and uh, I stayed in the saddle of it and in the present and felt it all. I did some big, uh, big riffing. I wanted to read an email from my father that had come that day and I'd given my phone to one of the women who works for the festival and she was out outside somewhere, out, 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 not on stage obviously. So I started calling her for to come on stage and bring me the phone and she wasn't showing up. So there was this amazing theatrical improv that was literally theater. There was uh, uh, 2,600 people wondering whether or not someone was going to walk through a door, the expectations. And then I didn't think it was going to happen. And then she showed up and opened the door. Everybody cheered. I got the phone. I read the email, got some laughs with that. And then I actually found myself for a split second about to check my texts on stage at Carnegie Hall. I was about to check my texts. So that has to indicate that I was pretty fucking comfortable. And I got to be honest with you. I think I'm, I think I brought that room right into me and put it back out. I think I made Carnegie Hall the giant that it is into a, a, a small, beautiful little cradle of people that were just, I was hanging around, talking, getting some laughs. I made Carnegie Hall work on my terms, and it was one of the most exciting events of my life. And I'm very happy that some of you were there to witness it. I feel great about it, and now things are going to change. Things are going to change, not in a bad way, but they're going to change. But thank you for all your support and thank you for believing in me and thank you for being there if you were there. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself. And I think my mommy is proud too. What are those changes? Is that what you're going to ask? I'm going to fucking take it easy, folks. I've been chasing my ass for fucking years. I've been you know, chasing this comedy dream you know, I do this podcast. I'm happy to do the podcast. It's really what I was meant to do. I, I, I'm good at whatever the hell happens in here. I'm, I'm good at stand-up. I'm a great stand-up. I've never been a better stand-up. And, you know, I just proved that to myself, finally. And to be honest with you, I don't know what anyone thinks of me, you know, in the big picture, but I know where I stand now. And from here on out, because I can, I'm going to take my time building my act I'm going to take my time really thinking about, you know, putting together, you know, shows at, at my own pace. There's no fucking hurry. I'm going to do a bunch of dates in the spring. I'm probably going to tape a special. But after that, going to take it easy a little bit. Obviously, the podcast's not going anywhere. But I'm going to take it easy. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to take some months and figure out something amazing to do. See, I, I'm drawn to these big lines, being dramatic. I'll probably just end up doing what I always do, compulsively going to comedy clubs three nights a week to do 15 minutes so I feel like a human who, who <laughs> with an outlet, with a craft and a skill. 
Uh, LaFonda, I brought back to the vet since I last talked to you in a panic. She's up and around. She's kind of running around a little bit. She's eating more. Uh, she's about 80% of what she used to be, but she's 12 years old, and if she can just stay there and not decline, I'd be happy. She didn't die while I was doing Carnegie Hall, which I thought was going to happen, and, and she's doing okay. I, I don't know if she will stop doing okay once the steroid wears off, but um, but she's alive. She's up. She's kind of mostly herself, and uh, I'm grateful for that. So, so, I am thrilled to have Sam Quinones here on the show. I had this book sitting around for a couple months. It's called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. And I just saw it sitting there. I get sent a lot of books. And there was something about it, though. I'm like, you know, I would like to know. I would like to know. I want to know. I want to know about that. I want to know about this plague. How did it happen? How did it happen on a on a societal level, on a business level, on an economic level? You know, what what, you know, and it seemed like one of those books. And it was one of those books. It it was a book that should be read now, heading into this election. It should be read for a lot of reasons because it really shows you through the lens of opiates, through the lens of black tar heroin and that business and the lens of, of opioids, oxycontin, oxycodone, in that business. You see what economic difficulties and, and different parts of the country and shifting trends in manufacturing and job availabilities. You see uh, the immigrant experience in, 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 in a couple of ways. You hear, you, know, you hear the voices of law enforcement, of drug addicts, of, of people who are dealing with that. But, but ultimately, it's really a portrait of America in the last couple of decades in, in a very specific way, but it's all encompassing. And, you know, Sam, Sam Quinones, what, yeah, he spent a lot of time in Mexico. You know, he's got several books available that you can, uh, you know, get them as well. Antonio's Gun and Delfino's Dream and True Tales from Another Mexico or a couple of his books. He lived in Mexico for over a decade. He was on the immigration beat for the LA Times. For a long time, this black tar heroin thing was sort of a, a fluke. But, you know, he's a man who understands the immigrant experience. And a lot of what happens in this book, uh, Dreamland, is a really a, an amazing story about Mexico in a lot of ways, as much as it is about the United States. And it's a, it, it is a page turner. And he's the real deal. He just lives down the street from me somewhere, not far away. And I reached out to him. Someone, you know, I, I, someone sent me, said they knew him, uh, sent me an email and connected us and he was he, thrilled to come over. And he, but see, what you'll hear here, not unlike my talk with David Simon, is, is a real journalist and a guy who pursued the story from nothing. The story did not exist and it was out there to be told and it's an important one. So listen to a very engaged, a very intelligent and very thorough and on the level journalist uh talk about you know how america got destroyed in a lot of ways by opiates this is me and sam quinones talking about dreamland 
The true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Demic. You know, I had this book. You had your book sitting around in a stack of shit mm-hmm. that comes to me because I get shit <laughs> sent to me. I get a lot of shit sent to me. Right. And for some reason, I was like, you know, just the subheading, you know, like Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Like I've seen books about things before, but I just, I didn't let this go. Like it was just sitting there for months well, great. with other stuff and I'm throwing, <laughs> I'm pushing aside other stuff. I'm bringing books to libraries because I don't want to throw stuff away, but right. I kept that there. And then I decided one day I'll just pick it up. I've been waiting on it kind of, and I couldn't <laughs> fucking stop, you know? And I hadn't had that. Great, man. <laughs> I hadn't had that happen though with a piece of journalism uh-huh. since uh, Fast Food Nation, since Schwasser's right. book. Right, sure. And it's sort of similar in the way it breaks shit down and right. it's readable and it gets into all the nooks and crannies and all the different layers right. of what you're dealing with. It's not about hamburgers, but right. it's about heroin that was sold like hamburgers in yeah. a way. And it was about that are sold franchising. The same way, too. Right. <laughs> what was compelling to me was it's really about America. Yes. Like it's it's about you know part part one of the elements of the decline yes. of America, but it's something that really is sourced in in uh, you know a failing economy, yes. you know outsourcing uh, an overambitious corporate environment, uh, uh, a pharmacological environment, and New Mexico plays into this too a little bit. And I, oh yeah, I, I grew I, well, up the there. The thing about the, the the story I realized is that um, when I when I got into the the book, I thought I was writing a crime book. I thought I was writing a dope book. I had lived in Mexico for many years. For what? Uh, I was a reporter down there. I was a journalist freelancer, just kind of oh, wing, really? winging it. And I wrote two books down there. Why Mexico? I just went down there uh, because I've, I believed that Mexico was becoming enormously important, first at that time to California, and then, of course, later to all of the United States. Right. Um, and I went down there, and I went down for three months. Uh, to study Spanish a little bit because my Spanish was really bad. Yeah. And uh, I ended up finding a job at a little funky magazine yeah. and staying for 10 years. And I wrote three, really? two books about Mexico and did a lot of travel. So, so my focus was not about the United States. I didn't even really know when I started this what an Oxycontin was or a Vicodin was. When I did had, you start? How many years ago? This was uh, 2009. Uh-huh. And so I came back to the, to, to the United States in 2004 to work for the LA Times. And meanwhile- this, As a staff writer? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the whole drug war in Mexico kicks off, gets very, very medieval. And about the cartels. Two, yeah, and they're, they're, it's not just the cartels. It's the cartels feuding where they used to not. They right. used to kind of have the gentleman's agreement. And then, of course, you get the government and the uh, fighting them all and the g- cartels fighting each yeah. other. And it gets very, very um, sinister uh, very quickly. 
And so in uh, 2008, I was put on a team of reporters to write about the drug war. I was in L.A. I spoke fluent Spanish yeah. in New Mexico. So my job was to cover how drugs were trafficked once they crossed the border. It's a very good idea. Nobody yeah. writes about that kind of stuff. And, right. And I had written a couple of stories, and I was uh, casting around for another one. And I find a series of stories out of the town of Huntington, West Virginia, where a dozen people had died of black tar heroin in six months. Now, before that, as just kind of background... I had worked as a crime reporter. A big part of my career was as a crime reporter in the city of Stockton, California, which if you know Stockton, is a really yeah. good place to be a crime reporter. And, uh, <laughs> and not great, that's not a great thing for Stockton. No, but it's. Uh, I love the town. I want to say this. I, I don't yeah, yeah. let people talk bad about Stockton. It's one of my favorite towns. Um, but what ended up happening was I learned there a lot about heroin. Right. And in, um, in, uh, uh, in Western United States, I learned... Uh, we didn't have the white powder heroin that you saw in the French Connection and all that stuff. We had only black tar, and it all came from Mexico. And it really didn't cross the Mississippi River. But that was post, like, what, 95, 96? That, I mean, that, was, that was in the 80s and the 90s, right. right? Okay, so I come upon this story that kind of breaks down all everything I thought I knew about black tar heroin. One was that um, it was... Uh, uh, I thought it was from Mexico, but but I looked and West Virginia had the fewest number of Mexicans in all of all of the United States. Yeah, right, you know. And what, all, what made you read these stories about about Virginia? I mean, where'd they come from? I, I was just tooling around. I, I actually right now can't remember. I just came across this stuff and like and it got more and yeah. Googled more and <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. soon we're heading to West Virginia. It's like a dozen people dying in six months. They hadn't had a they'd only had one overdose in ten years. Right, right. And it, it seems strange to me. Why is there black tar heroin in West Virginia? What's yeah. it doing east of the Mississippi River? Right. Why, why, if there are no Mexicans in West Virginia, are there, is there Mexican heroin there? Yeah. So I make some phone calls. You know, if you're a reporter and you don't follow up on those hunches, you might as well find another job, basically. <laughs> yeah. I call Huntington PD. Huntington PD says, you know, all that dope was coming from Columbus. And I call Columbus. And uh, DEA, and thank yeah. God, I run into this magnificent DEA agent. DEA agents can be—it depends. You yeah, know, some are great, and some are not so not right. so great when it comes to to explaining stuff to the media. This guy was fantastic. Plus, he was pissed off. He was really mad because he'd been there ten <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah, and he said, "When I got, here, I've been in business twenty five years. Okay, I got here ten years ago. We had no heroin, none in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I was like." Okay, what happened? He says, well, about 10 years ago, we begin to see these Mexican guys tooling around town, their mouths in, in cars, really in, uh, inconspicuous, not dressed out, not right. flashy car, old cars, yeah. uh, baseball caps. They look yeah. like Home Depot day workers, right. you know? And he goes, there are, they were, their mouths filled with little balloons sure. of tenth of a grand doses right. of black tar. Here right. on a big bottle next to them, so they swig it down if the cops stop them. Next no guns. This right. was the other thing. I had grown up, my career had started in the crack years, and that it was all about guns. That's how you got market share. You killed your rival, right? Sure, and That's also what, the history in our minds, because you're, well, how old are you? I'm 57. I'm 52, so like heroin was like New York, mafia. Right, exactly. And, and you know, you had, you had the example of Al Capone, you know, the Colombians in Miami, the Bloods on the Crips. Drugs, market share is gained through the barrel of a gun. Sure. And these guys, none of that. He right. said, this is the weird thing. They don't use any guns. And uh, he also said they, um, uh, they, they, they're on salary. And in the drug world, nobody's on salary. You're not an, a salaried employee in the drug right. world. You sell your dope for more than you bought it for. That's how right. you make you step money. on it. Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. And so 
I'm like, this is bizarre. And yeah. then he said something that kind of like uh, changed my life. Well, first of all, he says they deliver it like pizza. Yeah. And that was weird. So yeah. I'm just like, they, they, an, an addict will call an operator. You know, the operator is like standing by and. Uh, the operator then calls one of these drivers yeah. who's around the town, tooling around town with a yeah. house full of heroin. Right. And they, they meet the guy in uh, a Burger King parking lot or a Target parking lot, some parking lot, so, something so like that. So the difference was it's no going to the bad neighborhood. There's no convenience. like- Convenience. Uh, it's all about convenience and customer service and, and bringing the dope to you. And that sort of like that that plays in, which you'll talk about later, I'm sure, is just the, the shifting of the clientele. Uh, yeah, that's right, another so, point. But, so, but, but what's he uh, change your life? He then changed. he goes, he says this. He says, the crazy thing is, man, they're all from the same town. Now, I had lived in Mexico, and I was, I think, probably especially ready to hear that. Because when I lived in Mexico, I th- that that's a very common phenomenon where you have one town where everybody does the same job. Right. Everybody's a construction worker. Uh-huh. Um, biggest example is all the immigrants. Everyone from one town is a landscaper in Dallas, for uh-huh. example. You right, know? right, uh, right. There's a town I wrote about in my first book where everybody makes popsicles, and they have these popsicle shops all over Mexico. One of the great, great business stories of Mexico, how poor rancheros got to be middle-class business owners through the popsicle and then in front of the town you go to the town i went to this town several times you go to the town in the front of the town is a two-story concrete popsicle yeah. you know it's amazing it's on my it's on my put a photo of it on my and, website and also you, that brings to mind the 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 sort of like the nature of a different sense of competition in mexican businesses that you made a point later in the book to kind of talk about how you know the competition there was no shame in selling the exact same thing down the street the only angle you have is to undercut the guy right a couple yes. blocks and away and that's a frequent thing if you go to like like artisan villages where everyone makes the same kind of ceramics right and that's you see this in like Michoacan states like that or Oaxaca you see this where people just sell the same stuff and, and how do you make a bit living at it well you just yeah you, you undercut and yeah. eventually it means it's a, a you know road to the down you know road to the bottom basically but when he told me that there's for, there, I was like ready to hear that. Right. I've been to the, and the reason that's true is that that um, in Mexico it's very hard for people at the bottom to get the kind of access to education yeah. that will allow them to become a mechanical engineer, yeah. for example. Just right. really hard to have. So you get these villages where everybody does this. There's a village near Mexico City where everyone, literally true, everyone is a pimp, and they all pimp girls to Mexico City, and then they figured out Queens, New York. And they began pimping girls to Queens, New York, and building enormous houses. You go to this house, let's go to this village, and it's now like packed with like castles. And there's a four-story pagoda, and it's all built by a, a, a construction workers from a village down the road. So what I'm saying is that the, the, when he told me that, so wait, what they they would go, they would create almost franchises in Queens with women from yeah, Mexico, basically families. The families uh, were all pimps, like the mom and yeah. the sisters. And the wives, and the and, and of course the men, yeah. would pimp out these very naive uh, country girls in Mexico, and take them to uh, Queens, Queens, New York. Huh. And, uh, it's a huge, huge businesses, and made that made that village very, very wealthy. It's the name of the town is uh, Tenancingo in the state of Tlaxcala. It's very well known, and uh, as a pimp town. And uh, so anyway, I was like ready to hear that there. So when I during that conversation, I realized there must be one town in Mexico where they sell where they uh, sell heroin like pizza in Columbus, right, Ohio. Right, and I right. thought, that's a hell of a story. Yeah. And so I kept on, and he said, he comes back on the phone, he goes, the name of the town is Tepic Nayarit. 
And right there, I kind of knew that he was wrong because Tepic Nayarit is a is the capital. Tepic is the capital city of this little small state called Nayarit. Uh-huh. Three hundred fifty thousand people in yeah. the city. That's not where these kinds of of systems grow up. They're in small villages. I, and so I kept at it because I d- knew he was he wasn't lying to me. He just didn't have the right information. Right. I knew he was wrong. Right. And and so I, what I did was I just wrote to all these guys that they see. The other thing he told me was. We have arrested these guys and arrested and arrested, and they just keep on sending more people. We put these guys in prison, yeah. and more guys arrive two days later, yeah, yeah, or a week yeah. later. And so um, he gives me a long list of all these guys they've indicted and put in federal prison. I write to about, I can't remember, 15, 20 probably of them. And hey, and say, would you like to talk about your heroin system? That kind of that's the way I do my job as a crime yeah. reporter. You just write, reach out to people in prison. That's a very effective ask them a straight question. Exactly. You want to talk about this, and and you get about a ten percent response rate, uh-huh. and and even those sometimes are no, but but um, you don't need many to really tell you the the the, the beautiful full yeah yeah meat of the story, which uh-huh. is what happened. Basically, I waited for a month, got no nobody you know responding, and then one. Out of the blue, I'm in my office, little office like you got here, kind of, um, in my garage. And this guy calls, and he says uh, he's been doing fi- he's doing 15 years for being the operator, the phone operator in the pizza delivery system in yeah, Columbus, the dispatch, killed, right? And and he's uh, he says, no, we're not from Tepic, we're from a small town called Jalisco. Yeah. Now that threw me too because Jalisco is actually the name of an enormous state where Guadalajara is located. Yeah. So I'm thinking, Jalisco Nayarit, it sounds to the, the people who know a little bit like saying Arkansas, Nebraska or something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. And as he's talking, I'm Googling, and sure enough, there's a little dinky town called Jalisco right next to Tepic. It's about a few miles away is all. And and I'm like, holy shit, man. I just, it became clear that there was like this this one town. Because he where, knew the system. He knew how you, it worked. Yeah, yeah. He, oh, he knew it all. He knew it all. But he you was, also knew how these small towns worked. Exactly, and yeah. this this had to be this yeah. had to be it. And he right. goes, he goes, and then I said, well, um, but then see the the amazing thing was the dude starts talking about all these. He he says, no, it's not just Columbus, and I'm like sitting there in my chair, <laughs> seeing this like enormous thing develop as he's talking. No, Albuquerque. Yeah. No, you know, uh, Charlotte, uh, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Reno, Portland, Seattle, uh, Denver. Uh, uh, Indianapolis, on and on, and I'm like thinking one town. I looked it up. Twenty thousand people in the town. Yeah. The county is about forty five, forty nine, yeah, yeah. something like that. And I'm like, shit, man, this is like a massive, a massive thing. That yeah. this one little town is a is a is a purveyor of black tar heroin to I count eventually twenty states. What town that the size of like this neighborhood almost, you know? And, the, and 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 in your mind, you're like, this is the biggest story. This is huge. This is huge. <laughs> this is I'm like, my God, I can't believe it. And yeah. And then see, uh, I begin to invest. So I begin to write to more guys, you yeah. know, and and begin to call towns to find. And what I find is that for so call long, call towns in the states, in the states, right. these cities that he has mentioned. And I, oh, the other thing I tell him is, uh, so when did you guys go to New York? Because I figure I'm from the 70s. I've watched all these heroin movies, yeah. you know, Serpico, French yeah. Connection, all these right. great movies. I'm thinking they got to be in New York because right. that's the heroin market. He goes, no, we never go to New York. Yeah. And I'm like, what? why? Because there's, and 
stupid me. There's gangs there. They got guns. They're looking, these Mafia, guys, entrenched yeah, they're, business. They're look, these guys are looking for the easy way. Yeah. The town that is like without competition, has no gangs, right. has no button mafias. No heroin. Oh, really? and, and in many places, no heroin almost at all. Right. right. Like, like Columbus, Ohio, which had virtually no heroin worth the name so uh, the, before these guys show up. Right. right? And so anyway, um, I begin to, to write to all these guys and then I start talking to cops and see... What I found was that heroin had been such a low priority drug for so many years because you had cocaine and crack and meth and of course heroin was still stigmatized and it was a very specific clientele. And also for many years, the number of pop, of, of addicts did not grow. Right, because it was needles, it was dirty. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, it was. There was like a the while in New York in the eighties where the heroin grade got higher and you could snort it, and that yeah. kind of built a new market. I remember. Mm-hmm. But but before that, it was really just for real dope fiends. Yeah, exactly. And 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 so who cares? It's yeah. not a big deal. Um, but there was usually I found one guy, one cop in each town um, who really really knew his stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, first guy was a guy named Dennis Chavez in um, in Denver. That guy's a walking encyclopedia since re- just retired actually. Mm-hmm. A walking encyclopedia of information on the Jalisco boys. It's just he's the one who coined the phrase the yeah. Jalisco boys, yeah. which I use in my book. Yeah. Um, I found a dude named a, a guy. I have a lot of respect for cops who yeah. have, who have really dug in, like reporters trying to understand their beat. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Rupplinger in Boise. Now, this guy speaks no Spanish. Yeah. And he just begins to notice this crew all of a sudden, the same way the DEA guy in Columbus began to notice, these crew driving around and all this stuff, the same story pretty much. See, he speaks no Spanish. He's all alone in Boise. Nobody really knows of thinks Boise. Is and like he's the, trying to make connections and no one's taking and, and, and his friends, his colleagues are all laughing at him. Yeah. And he puts together the whole system from... Like, I don't know exactly how he did it, but he's a tenacious cat, you yeah. know, and a, and a guy who just kept at it and yeah. and, and, and under, becomes to understand that Boise is actually a, a, a minor franchise spot for a family that actually owns like eight right. franchises in Denver, Portland, Reno, I think it was, LA, Southern California, Honolulu, et cetera. And he puts it on, traces it all back to this one guy back back in uh, back in Jalisco, Nayarit. Te- and, Tejada? Was it Tejada? No, it was um, um, Garcia Langarica. Uh-huh. Now, this guy, uh, because of a lot of problems convincing prosecutors that this was an important case in the middle of the meth yeah. war, war, war in the middle of the coke thing and all yeah. that stuff, uh, the, this guy, uh, Poya, this is his nickname, uh, Garcia Langarica basically is still down there. He's not been prosecuted. But but the amazing thing was, I, I talked to this guy. He, is, he had retired too. He was, uh, he was uh, off the job. And I called him and he's like, what? Yeah, that case was like eight, ten years ago, and he couldn't believe that someone wanted to talk to him about this the case. The Boise cop. The Boise cop, yeah. Rupplinger. He was fantastic. I just, I like drained him, and <laughs> and then I went to Boise, and he showed all like this reporter from the LA Times, and boy, what are you doing here? That just didn't make any sense, but I, I could see that this was this huge network of guys, and they all designed, you know, they knew kind of what, what, um, what the public, what the cops, what the politicians, whatever, what the media all thought was a pot, was a great drug bust. Lots of dope, lots of money, lots of toys like cars yeah. and jewels right. and whatever, boats and stuff. And they designed a system to look exactly like the opposite right. of that. And that started kind of in California, right? In Southern California? It started California. not far from here, like in Canoga Park, yeah. Van Nuys. And, and a couple of things happened. This is where that, that town kind of migrated. 
the uh, uh, Jalisco. from Jalisco. That people, legit migrants, guys who were working in a sugarcane town, right? Sugarcane, avocados, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Avocados came later, though, later, right? but I mean, right now that's kind of what they do. And they they moved there, and a few to Canoga Park, Canoga Park, and Van Nuys. Yeah. And a few of them had um, connections to the mountains of Nayarit where the Indians grow the opium poppy. And they knew how to cook black tar heroin. It's a little bit like, uh, well, no, the guys from Jalisco, a few of these, two or three of these families. And they they knew how to, it's a little bit like a backyard barbecue kind of yeah. process. It's yeah. not that difficult to figure out. They begin selling this stuff as a sideline, I think, to junkies in the park. Yeah. You know, cutting off little pieces of addicts who come up to them. But a couple of things happen in LA that are really important to all this. First yeah. of all, they're all from the same town. Yeah. So they can't kill anybody who comes up to compete with them. Right. Right? Yeah. They just got to let competition happen. Yeah. Because uh, they know where each other's moms live, basically. Yeah. You don't go <laughs> shooting each other if you know where each other's moms right, live. Right. right? Well, then um, what happens is uh, the cops begin to arrest these guys because there's a little more of them and they yeah. can, can become more obvious. But also really important in L.A. is that in the, the, the mid, early 1990s, the Mexican mafia prison gang sends out directives um, uh, to start taxing all the street gangs, the Latino street gangs. Uh, they need to start taxing all the uh, dealers in their area. For tar? Anything, whatever you're selling, dope right. of any kind, right. and it, and funnel the proceeds to the Mexican mafia. It's a right. very well protection documented thing. thing. It's a kind of a protection racket. And yeah. It's called taxing, right? And it's uh, all over uh, uh, Southern California. Latino gangs doing this for twenty more than twenty years now. Sending money back to Mexico. For no, 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 no. The Mexican mafia is the prison gang. They don't have any connection to Mexico. They, they're called the Mexican mafia. Right. But it's a prison gang that really controls the tr the Latinos, the, the street gangs in the prison system. But they right. figured out that the, on the outside were all these gangs in this area yeah, and some others yeah. that were like willing to do their bidding you know right. like damn right whatever you say right. even though you're in prison I'm on the street I'll because I'm one day going to go to prison and I want to be on your good side right and I'm also look at I look up to you like you're some kind of major league baseball player right. or something like that so they begin to order these gangs and through the 90s this is what happens they begin all these latino street gangs begin yeah, taxing yeah. the local dealers and funneling the money to the to the to the right. mafia members with the, the threat Day. of pissing off yeah and whatever. so in order to avoid that the jalisco boys go to cars so if you're not standing on the street or in a house it's not so easy for them to tax you so they right. go into cars larger clientele they begin to move out from there and so that that's forces the basis them. of the business model exactly right of and, the dispatch and at the time model. it was it was, it was uh, 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 you know pagers yeah that kind of thing sure. pay phones and yeah. pagers one way or another and, but was that was it. like you yeah. know back then and as they saturate a market, what they do what any capitalist enterprise does when it sees its profits drop, and that is it, they expand. They go for new other markets, and that's what they did. So in the early, uh, well, by the by, like 1990, 91, 92, they were moving to Pomona, Ontario. They were moving to uh, uh, Reno. Portland was and, a big and, place. And at that time, what they would do to drum up uh, business is they find the old junkies or yes. they go to the methadone clinic and they hand out samples. You have to understand, samples. these guys knew no English. They right. don't know the methadone clinic world. So right. how do they, they get kind of Indian guides, yeah. if you like the right. Spanish explorers sure. use, you know? Sure. And the junkies are that. And then they just find them and they spread out. And they, exactly. They, and they, right. they're the ones who take them to Honolulu, to Portland. Just to find the Denver. junkies. Yeah, and they give them free dope so, for uh, for the introduction. Once you figure all this shit out, mm -hmm. where when when is the next epiphany that the that oxy the oxycontin epidemic yeah. played directly into the evolution of the the middle class white junkie phenomenon? 
that that came and also the working class right and poverty class white junkie that came more uh, later when i began to because the, the obvious question one of the obvious questions i had out of huntington west virginia was not just why is black tar heroin there, but why is there any appetite for heroin at all? I mean, I don't consider West Virginia or didn't consider West Virginia a big heroin place, right? right? I mean, it's just not, that wasn't the place, you know, Chicago, it was East LA. It was and then New also York. in the late 80s or the 90s, you heard Portland, Seattle, uh, and but that was all part of this, right? But I don't, I didn't see West Virginia. So right, my, sure, question no, was, it, yeah. my question was, why would they have any appetite at all? And little by little, I became to realize, I was almost done for that story with the, uh, with that story for the LA Times when I began to realize this is an even bigger. There's an even bigger story. So you're publishing these pieces because I noticed in the book it is written in short bursts, which is great yeah, for me right. that you were organized eventually. Sure. So they were printed. So you were writing on black tar and all and, this. And I got to the end of that story to finish that story up, and I began began to realize, you know, if I had uh, two more, three more days worth of space, yeah. I would write about the bigger story, which is OxyContin and 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 how ever, all these guys, all these addicts, like almost 100% uh, of the new heroin addicts are folks who are um, started with pills, with, yeah. pain, with pain pills through one way or, or another. And I begin to think, damn, this is in a, this, so what I'm seeing here is actually the second half I backed in right. to the story. Most people come to the story through the pills, you know. So what I was it, what was the moment in the garage where you you were like, "Holy shit!" Um, I think it was talking early. Well, a couple of times. First, it was I think talking with I believe it was a cop in Huntington later, uh, and he was saying, telling me this, and I began to think, "Damn, this is this is really big." But it wasn't until I started the book uh, in 2012, 13, yeah. that I began to realize the whole. I had no background in health covering uh, reporting. Right. Uh, I was a crime reporter and yeah. an immigration reporter and yeah. stuff like that and border reporter. Um, and, and I had so I know I had no back. So I began to talk to um, historians uh-huh. of pain. Yeah. There, there is such a thing. In fact, that's UCLA, where you started. Yeah. Because you knew that the oxys were coming through the pain management right. system. Right. Yeah. I, I kind of had figured that out, and I spoke with um, a, a great uh, professor over at UCLA, Marsha Meldrum, who is uh-huh. a historian of pain, literally, and they have a big library uh, collection called uh, I can't remember the full name of it right now, but it's a it's a it's a collection of of, of oral history of pain, uh-huh. uh, talking to doctors and how do we treat pain and when do we recognize them, and she was the one who kind of laid out for me the the whole history of pain that a lot of which I talk about in the book and then she talks about how in the 90s um, it came to the, a lot of these pain specialists began to lobby very hard for a very much more uh, liberal use of these pain pills they were joined uh, very importantly by uh, certain pharmaceutical companies especially Purdue Pharma which makes OxyContin but but pre- previous to that uh huh. That, you know, talking specifically about pain, non-specific pain, pain as pain, that what you do in the book that I thought was fascinating was that this was not a, this was not a practitioner before yeah. you know yeah. pain was something that doctors didn't understand yes pain was something that like i don't know what to tell you i can give you this i can give you that <laughs> yes. yeah i'm sorry you have that if it's injury related it's more understandable but it's fibromyalgic or it's uh right. non-specific most western doctors are like I, I don't know what the fuck to do here take a pill right but not not opiates necessarily yeah right. maybe, maybe yes. uh, uh vicodin maybe uh codeine tylenol whatever right. which are mild opiates 
So what became fascinating to me in the book was the history of pain as what you call the fifth vital sign. Right. That it became established by yeah. certain uh, uh, cadre within yeah, right. medical institutions as being you know something we need to treat. Our Hippocratic Oath is to help, and, yeah. and we got to help these people. In right, pain. right. And that, that I learned later as I was doing the book, as I got into the book. I'm not sure I knew all of that. That part of a journey of a book is... You find new things out, and you let the facts take you instead of have some having some very concrete. Because way. pain management is something in my lifetime; it's in your lifetime, and you know you sort of uh, flesh it out in the book as how it evolved as a business and how it eventually corrupted right. uh, as a business. But what was fascinating to me all the way through it is that you know I'm sure from talking to the woman about the history of pain that you be- you became mildly obsessed with the idea of the morphine molecule yeah that that's kind of where the book begins to be less of a crime book and i begin to realize there's this unseen particle yeah right right in one plant that bizarrely this plant has evolved to become absolutely essential to the dominant mammal on the planet right the right. the, the morphine the opium poppy i'm right. talking about and within that opium poppy there is a, a morphine molecule that and within that molecule we have the 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 um the, the possibility of heaven and hell, right. uh, freedom and complete us enslavement. Uh, and if, uh, but it's historical. This is not. This is not last twenty years. This is hundreds of years. I know. This was, This was kind of smoking what, pot, smoking opium all the way back. Right. Exactly. And it, and it starts. And it. So it's, we've got a long history as a species with this with this plant. Yes. And and it struck me as this 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 particle this mo- this molecule could create the most blessed relief right freedom right. from the most uh, uh, uh tortured uh, kind of pain. worst pain uh-huh. and it could also uh, be the the source of the greatest debasement the greatest enslavement right. uh, we've ever known people people who who uh spoiled kids who will then uh, walk through the snow for 5 miles to find their junkie or yeah, you know or prostitute can, themselves or kill or people any, or sleep rob in a, people sleep in a railroad or, car all of that in one little thing. And I began to understand the basic question here is, can mankind have it all? Can we have uh, freedom from pain and freedom from uh, addiction? You know, it, all these like philosophical questions yeah. began to hit me that I'm not used to well, right, it's not asking. A jur- that's not a journalist's area. And much less a crime reporter's uh, <laughs> background. You know what I'm saying? It just yeah. doesn't make any, <laughs> yeah. that's not what you usually do. So it really you know? took you to task as a human thinker. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it became... A, a big th- a part of the book because as, as it turns out we've been trying to find that pill for a long time that's what they thought oxycontin was right they thought oxycontin was the pill that could the, the pill they've been trying to find which is pain relief on the order of morphine yeah no addiction right like addiction on the order of aspirin right 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 and they thought for me- years they, we tried as a species but also here in the united states tried to find this this drug mm. this holy grail couldn't find it finally what they decided was maybe the, the 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 key is not in the drug, but in just simply a different way of administering it. So OxyContin comes along as this drug that is going to because it's like leaked into your system, a right. time released right. into your system right. over twelve hours. Right. That maybe a new way of administering an old drug is really the answer. Well, we they were looking they for. certainly underestimated the smarts of junkies. Yes, figure <laughs> right. But also, they also I think they also really the other thing they did was they they began to. Believe kind of in a religious fervor. This kind of religious fervor gained gained kind of power within this uh, movement and the, the pain, pain management world, movement. pain management mo- movement to say yes, we've got it, we've got it, and and well, the, the evidence that that this would not 
addict people was uh, nil. Well, that way you that's all through the book, and that was interesting to me because that was the journalist. Whatever uh, existential and, and philosophical <laughs> conversations you were having with yourself is yeah. that what these doctors were hanging their their beliefs on yeah. that that the 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 rate of addiction was is really low, low if the person is in real pain right was like this this that you that that the amazing moment in the book is like with this dr jix what was yeah. it the jix johnson no uh, herschel jick and jane porter were the people who wrote it just, a letter yes. to the new england journal of medicine right it's because see at that point people wanted to believe i know but it was like what, yeah. once but once the letter is out there it was taken out of context totally uh, the information was not substantiated <laughs> by any research and it just became this gospel gospel right. and and nobody it just took its own life yeah it the letter viral. is just to explain to your people who are listening it's, the letter says uh that this this doctor has gone through a database of hospital patients and found uh and asked the question how many received narcotic pain relievers while in hospital and how many of those got addicted to them and this was from 1980 and he writes this letter saying in my hospital database i found 11,000 people got these these medicines while in on hospital and four got addicted the new england journal of medicine in its letter to the editor publishes this letter under the headline addiction rare in patients treated with narcotics the worst headline I mean, just an amazing thing because this becomes the cornerstone, the intellectual it's cornerstone. It's so funny because it's really equivalent to that clickbait in a yes. way. <laughs> but right. it's pre-clickbait. Oh, to- to- absolutely. It's like, l- read this letter, read yeah. this letter. doesn't mean anything. And this guy never intended that. And he forgot about the letter. I know that was the, the, the most hilarious thing about uh, in a darkly funny way is when you yeah. go back to talk to him, you finally talk to him. He's like, what? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, no. He, well, he by, the, by that point, but it, it took years for him to figure out that his letter had been cited over and over something like 900 times right it's cited and used to substantiate the business model of oxycontin right which they they ram down the country's throat right exactly and oxycontin is crucial to all this there would not be a heroin problem in america right. if, if it were not for oxycontin because oxycontin unlike the vicodin and the percocets and stuff which which have tylenol and acetaminophen in them um, so you, you can mess around with those pills, but if you really want to develop a very large tolerance to addiction to those, you're going to s- j- just destroy your innards, your right. liver and kidney. So Oxycontin has no no t- Tylenol, no acetaminophen. It's just straight dote, straight yeah. oxycodone, which is yeah. an opiate very similar to heroin. So it serves to be the bridge between those low-dose pills and heroin. Right. It builds up people's tolerances to 200, 300, 400 milligrams a day. So they're paying on the street after a while, 50 cents to a dollar a milligram. That's 100, 200, 300 bucks a day. They, they are desperate to find something cheap that will take care of their addiction every day. And Mexican heroin is the, is the, is the answer, but would not have gotten there. Had it not been for the bridge of oxycontin, well, had you had not all those addicts been created and the pill mills created them to a degree, right? Yes. I mean, it, it, like because sure. that that seems to be the the bulk of it is that you know once this information this that was really misinformation uh, in in contextually speaking of the uh, of the Jix yeah. quote, right? You know, once the pharmaceutical company, specifically um, Purdue, Purdue, got hold of that and and. And the 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 American Medical Association yeah. had uh, over overrode the stigma of right. prescribing opiates, which they were nervous to do yeah. for a reason. See, that's the weird thing about yeah, the book too is that like the reason there was a stigma was because they knew there was a good reason. They knew <laughs> they, we had we had five thousand years of experience as a species with the opium 
Right, they Pop. knew. Everybody knows that. You know two things: great pain painkiller and very addictive. In right. the same common sense medicine. You know. And and docs knew that back yes, then, sure. and, and that's why it was. And so that's cool. why Purdue had a hell of a time because they had to override common sense medical school teachings, uh, kind of a, a, a collegial kind of attitude about people who prescribe those as being kind of quacks. You know, There's a whole lot of attitudes in the doctor's world. Well, they found that one doctor, though, that championed the Portnoy. whole- Portnoy. Russell Portnoy, right. And you think that his intentions were pure at the beginning? I'm not sure if pure is necessarily the word. I would say that I don't believe him to be some kind of snidely whiplash kind of evil guy. He was- Wanting to he, addict a country. Right, no, no. He was, he was formed in the period when doctors would never prescribe this stuff i mean they would never um uh, people would be screaming in agony and dying of you know like horrible things for three months to live and still docs would not prescribe these pills that could give people a three-month end of life of you know decent uh, freedom from pain right and so if you grow up in that if you're an idealistic doctor and you grew up and you see that firsthand i believe it can really a sear you it can it can really affect you and i believe that's kind of what happened with a lot of those younger fellows they then began very very uh um uh, irresponsibly in my opinion to take money from these pharmaceutical companies as well and that's where people begin to believe hey these guys motives are 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 questionable well, i having grown up with a doctor i know that they're relatively myopic they're not really uh, knowledgeable in 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 right. the world of addiction or psychological therapy and you were pretty clear in the book that the the insurance company's role in this was not minor in yeah, that they sure. limited a doctor's ability to do his job thoroughly right so you know you have western docs who are either orthopedics or general practitioners who are dealing with chronic shoulder pain, chronic back pain, whatever the hell it is, workman's yeah. comp money, and they don't have time or or the the real philosophical or experience to sort of really kind of let's see where you're at. Plus, you know, you've got these doctors who are meeting face to face with these pain patients who are insistent, begging, crying, mad, whatever you want, a variety of things. And it's very difficult for you as a doctor to say, well, I got something to help you, but you can't use it because it'll addict you. They wanted um, freedom or permission almost right. to use these drugs. And because they had these patients coming in, using up all their time that they didn't have and all this stuff. At the same time, too, it's really important um, that in some areas of the country, particularly Rust Belt, Appalachian yeah. areas, you get the doctor is the key to a life, of, to a, to a post-industrial life strategy. Meaning the doctor can get you with the right comments on a on a form or the right check boxes yeah. can get you a workers comp can get you SSI or SDI or a variety of things like that to allow you to then go on with your life after the the mill closed or the right. coal mine closed or the steel plant closed or whatever, and um, that's why I believe uh, the pharmaceutical companies knew that they knew that in certain areas they had da data that showed that doctors in those areas prescribed more than doctors in other areas and that's why they hit those doc they were already those docs were already used to prescribing and going along with with people that they saw who were in dire straits were really in serious trouble uh, economically sometimes physically too but a lot of times it was more more economic than physical but so you're saying that because they were uh, you, you know in uh, existential pain due to economic uh, um, realities and they were hopeless so or the, or the, or they just needed that government check to get them through. You know, you got. So to, you're saying, okay, so the doctor's signature is just a government check, so they can survive, not yeah. necessarily to give them drugs. Not, no, that in fact, at first it was more, uh, I want that SSI or SSDI check, so but I can then live. The pills come out. 
The yeah. pills come out in a big way, and they swamp those areas. Uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Eastern, Western Pennsylvania, uh, Indiana, Kentucky. Sort of Kentucky, Tennessee. And, 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 uh, and they swamp those areas, and all of a sudden, the great thing that you receive is not that 600 or or $1,000 check. Yeah. It's the Medicaid card. That where you can go to any doctor, and now there's all these doctors wanting to prescribe these drugs, and you can get them to prescribe. And for a $3 copay, the taxpayer will pay for you, the, the, the yeah. patient, to go to any pharmacist who will yeah. give you the drugs yeah. and, 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 and get them, and get them uh, fulfilled. And, and then you can sell those on the street right. for ten t- eight, six, eight, ten times what, it, what they're worth. So yeah, that begins the, the, the Oxycontin economy. But, right. but that was completely assisted and enabled by, you, know, you focus, you know, the book, the, the title of the book is Dreamland, and that's about a pool in right. Portsmouth, uh, right. uh, Ohio. Ohio, right. And which ironically becomes the most devastated yes. uh, area. Yes, the pill mill capital of America. Pill mill yes. capital of America because of legislation that yeah. enabled it. And then, you know, because of a, a very bankrupt and corrupt doctor right. who created the, the model, the franchise model. Yeah. That's the interesting thing about this, you know. Uh, these, th- when you start talking about opiates, you immediately start talking about business models because right. it creates customers who cannot not buy your product every day. Right. You know? Right. And so that's what I learned also in the, in the course of writing this book. He creates the idea of, of the, the, pain, the clinic, the doctor's clinic, which is just basically printing out prescriptions handling hundreds of patients a day people coming from all different counties and states. but their money is made on cash per prescript that yeah. like you got a 200 dollar to you 500. cannot you cannot get these prescriptions federal law says you cannot get these prescriptions uh, uh filled over the phone with some exceptions and so you got to be in person right so every time you go in you got to and, and these doctors begin bucks. to say hey no insurance were accepted here yeah cash 200 250 bucks a day and and they will that's a huge amount of money Every day that you're seeing, and of course you get lines out the door, people in their pajamas because they don't—they just want their dope. They don't give a damn where they're. So, but these you know. docs, the the reason why it becomes dubious is they had to know there was no way. Oh, they of couldn't. course. Here's the thing: doctors viewed this as this great, great uh, boon or great yeah. uh, uh, tool for their practice. I think in the long run, it actually was a curse. It, a lot of doctors, and I'm not saying I'm not so sure about Proctor, but there are other doctors who who do not start out to be scoundrels and right. scandalous doc, quacks. You yeah. know, they start thought they were helping people, right. and and little by little, the, they get worn away. That ethical compass, that moral compass, As, gets you know, worn and that, away. that that aligns with the tolerance of these patients growing. So also, and so, the insistence, damn it, doc. I need this, you yeah, know, that kind of thing, and and once you get worn out on that, and after a while, it's like, oh, what the hell? E- everyone's saying I should do this. The the Jayco or the the this medical institution is telling me that pain's the fifth vital sign. We have to treat this, and pretty soon you just go with the flow. Plus, the money is huge. Yeah. It's just uh, you know monumental, and then and and, and after a while, those doctors who may have started out as like really great, you know, decent guys, decent people get worn out and 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 corrupted yeah and then also like i thought another pivotal point was the uh that you know they the doctors who knew what exactly what they were getting into that the way they hired these doctors is because like any idiot could open up a pain management clinic they just need to find some bankrupt you know morally bankrupt doctor 
to write the scripts if he still had a license. So they would find these docs that have been kicked out or yes. accused of things in one state, but were not were still licensable, I guess. So one of, one of the ironic things is in this area where there's where there's no jobs and yeah. no money, presumably, and where where it's very difficult to find health care, all of a sudden you get the arrival of all these doctors right. to this area, except for they're all alcoholics or drug addicts themselves, some of them. Accused and, murderers. And, exactly, exactly. And, and, and they all come, and it's like, I, I viewed it as, you know, um, when Jesus is on the cross and they give him vinegar, water, yeah. you know, give him vinegar. That's kind of the way it was. It's these, these, these crucified regions, please give us health care, and all of a sudden, who arrives? Junkie docs, these scoundrels, these yeah. guys who are already like, and or they're senile, or yeah. you know, it's just it's it's this this awful uh, um, uh, uh, story of how they just well, uh, yeah, and, and it, but it's all about it's and it's all about business. So the model that Proctor, who is this massive scoundrel, yeah, from day He's one out now, by the way, He's in but he wouldn't now. talk to you, right? No, he wanted, he wanted money. money. I he wanted money. <laughs> he wanted me to pay him. I was like, hey man, I don't pay felons for. Uh, you but know. so that 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 <laughs> business model spreads to Florida, and then that mm. you know, and the Florida. Florida model, which everyone heard about those pill mills, like this became a currency among these desperate and poor people was right. getting these pills, driving busloads right. of junkies to get their pills, splitting up the pills, using them as currency. And then like, you know, the Walmarts were being pilfered daily <laughs> and they were and 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 fencing stuff for pills that were like there was an entire yeah, an entire economy built around moving these pills and robbing Walmart. Yeah, and Walmart. I have this theory. Here's my theory. Yeah, that if in all these small towns in the in that area of Columbus to the north and eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and all that and all these areas, had there been a more um, uh, uh, robust locally owned economic kind of ecosystem, yeah. of local stores and, mm-hmm, and merchants, mm-hmm. everyone knew each other. This would not have spread as fast. It spread fast because of Walmart. Walmart, uh, first, uh, first of all, ha- has uh, all has taken up all those stores on Main Street and plopped yeah. them down onto sure. the floor. You know, so you can buy a T-bone steak and children's yeah. clothes and an yeah. Xbox and a and a chainsaw in the same place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Same cart, mm-hmm. and they um, they they are not as uh, th- those greeters getting nine dollars an hour who are sixty-five year old ladies are not very. Uh, you know, they're not going to face off with some <laughs> white-eyed junkie, right? So they yeah. end up. Walmart becomes the one place where you can go and easily steal um, what you need for your for your addiction. Yeah. Um, you don't have to go to four stores along Main Street where all the the, the former owners would have the owners would have known you. Oh yeah, would have, would have been there to like, defend the, their shop. Who's the shady guy? Exactly. We know these guys. Yeah. You're not coming in the store, right. let alone like right. I'm, I'm, or I'm going to watch you. You know. So Walmart becomes this one place, and so you see these pilgrimages of people in Portsmouth down to the Walmart to figure out how to steal their daily. And the other thing is, oxycontin was really important in this as yeah. well because the other pills don't require like a huge amount of of um uh they don't require a huge amount of capital outlay each day you got you want to get get uh, your you're feeling well on vicodin uh yeah, yeah that's going to cost you if two or three pills are going to cost you about 10 bucks right oxycontin ups the ups the ante incredibly so now you're at your addiction again is 100 200 bucks the only place you're going to figure out where to steal 100 to 200 bucks worth of stuff is in walmart and it just so happens that in all the, that area, a lot of those towns had had their main retail, you know, uh, right, areas almost everywhere. But it's, emptied, it's, it's interesting because it's like you know, metaphorically, yeah. you know, Walmart is the harbinger of the end of small town small America, towns. right? And, and, and in this and, case, like almost literally, right. And Oxy is the death. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and what ends up happening is my, my feeling as I got into this book was, this is why I focused on the pool. Yeah. The swimming pool at, 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 uh, at, in, in Portsmouth, Ohio, was a stand-in for all the communities that have been destroyed. That, that pool was like this life-giving force. It was a, one of the largest pools in America. In the, the size 50s, of the football field. 40, for, for, from the 20s till when it was born, yeah. when it was built. Um, it was a place where life, the cycle of life took place. So yeah. you were, you know, everyone like had, the, that was the Baytown babysitter, yeah, you know, yeah. everyone saw each other. You grew up under the watchful eyes of all these different people. And the last thing you want to do was get kicked out of, out of dreamland for the summer because yeah. it was like the place where everyone, and, and the other thing was this guy who owned it, it was like another time in America where the, where this guy was this corporate owner. He owned a fa- shoe factory. He didn't need the money from the pool. So what did he do? He invests in the pool itself. More land, yeah. basketball court, picnic table. Responsible corporate. Hey, precisely, owner. yeah. And this guy puts the money back into the pool. So basically life, it's the cycle of life. You're a toddler. Yeah. You're at the shallow end. You're, yeah. a, you're in middle, middle school. You're in the middle of the pool with yeah. all your friends. The deep end is for the high school students and the yeah. young adults. You, a lot of people lost their virginity out in the pool out in the, the, the fields of dreamland yeah. and their kids start again so that's and once you lose that this is the crucial uh, thing it seems to me one they lost that in 93 they grew, they dug it up and it's like a Joni Mitchell song you go there now it's a big parking lot with um, a uh, O'Reilly's uh, auto parts store yeah. uh, there in 1993 they lost that they had lost the sh- steel factory they lost the shoe factories and in 93 couldn't keep the pool open anymore they, it got dug up and paved over and it was almost like they lost this this part of themselves or this 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 societal immune system went away yeah it was like the Indians when uh, vulnerable to smallpox when the Europeans came over, you know they're just, yeah. and so so that whole town just is totally vulnerable. Everybody goes indoors. There's no place. Walmart takes the place of Dreamland as the place where you see everybody. Hey, yeah. not for very long, you know. Hey, yeah. how you doing? That kind of thing. But no, there's no other public place to to commune to be yeah. part of the human society, and and everyone goes indoors. And then the pills come and just lay waste, just lay waste to that town. But my feeling is. It, had they had this community uh, uh, that, that that was destroyed over a period of about 15, 20 years, had that st- been able to stick around, th- these pills or the, the, the heroin would never have been the problem it became in, in, in Portsmouth. Well, yeah, right, and all over. And, and I think also, yeah. you know, you sort of spend some time in the second or towards the end of the book about the isolating nature of opiates and where they're done and how it's done and how it's a, yeah. a weird secret in your room kind of thing. And then, right. like, it evolves. Like, And I guess to bring the... Jalisco guys back, sure. you know, they start to become predators around these pill mills. Well, around one, the- one of the things that happens is that I thought was wild. I, I, one of the guys I wrote to yeah. turned out to be the most important person in the whole story, the guy called The Man. The Man, yeah. Yeah. This guy was... I didn't know who he was. I just wrote to him because it was on a list of, of an indictment. And that it I was found. under the condition you wouldn't use his name? Is that how that uh, yeah, Eventually, that's the... I interviewed the guy nine times. Right. He lives in California. Yeah. Uh, and I just said, okay, in exchange for your story, I'll just leave your name out of it for the moment until he dies. Then yeah. I'll, then I'll make it public. But... Um, his story was crucial, and I think in the, like the the Hall of Fame of dope trafficking, he's got to be one of them because he was the guy, the Jalisco boy. First of all, he's not from Jalisco, from Van Nuys, yeah, and he hooks up with the Jalisco boys in um, in prison in Nevada in the seventies, yeah, in the ni- early nineties. Oh, oh. Okay, so he gets out, and and they have this system, and and they have labor, and they tell him, look, we have all this stuff. What we don't have. We don't speak English. We don't know the methadone clinic world, and we're not 
we don't know the addict world. You bring that to the table. So he becomes almost adopted. He, he He's a Mexican-American guy, fluent in Spanish. He goes down to Mexico, lives in Jalisco, has his 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 crews up here working with his partner. The, and, and they do Reno. They do Portland. They do Denver. Cells. They create the cells. Exactly. They dispatch cells. And then he decides to go out on his own. And he is the one who brings, by pure coincidence, there's no conspiracy theory here, He's the one who brings all that, that black tar heroin to Columbus, Ohio first in 1998, summer of 98. I've tracked this. I think I pretty much know exa- almost exactly yeah. when he got there, like probably July of 1998. He gets there just as we've got a pain revolution in America saying we've got an epidemic of pain. We've got to do something about it. Just as pain is the fifth vital sign, just as all these pain specialists are saying, uh, we've got to have uh, use all these drugs that we're not been, you were too afraid to yeah. use up to now, just as Purdue Pharma is, is marketing OxyContin as if we're over-the-counter uh, stuff, yeah. and just as the pill mills are, are exploding, beginning to explode as a, as, a, as a business model, he arrives in Columbus. So the reason I focused on on the, the Jalisco boys is not because they're the only heroin traffickers in America or even the m- only Mexican black tar heroin traffickers. They are, though, the kind of vanguard of this new way of selling dope, which right. is without violence, which is, you know, customer service. Yeah. Trying to... But oh, they wouldn't you. let people stop. Exactly. Like, oh, right. oh, you're quitting? Here's a little... Here's, some, here's a gift. Yeah, 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 because I love you so much. Here, right. keep using my dope, you know. And then, and then... But they're also very important in all this. They're also the first ones to recognize the enormous heroin market that overprescribing of opiate painkillers implies yeah. and to then systematically exploit it. So they fo- he follows the pills. He yeah. goes and where are the pills going? Charlotte, okay, Indianapolis, Nashville, places like that. And then, of course, from there it explodes. And I think you're very you know, empathetic uh, in a way to these kids who are coming up they, that the the yeah. law enforcement's constantly talking about we can't stop it because they keep sending more of these farm kids and and all they're looking for this is the difference really that's yeah. sort of interesting it's somewhat similar to america but it is uniquely mexican in the yeah. way that what implies success there yes there, there is some of it here in america but all these guys want is is you know 501 levi's <laughs> a nice hat a yeah. horse a house with a second story uh you know these yeah. are all things but but that's really the end game for them yes. it's just that they are addicted to something it's just does it doesn't happen to be black tar heroin they are addicted it, to the idea of coming home the king being a sh- big shot yes coming home the king and giving away perfume to your girls and the black uh, but, I didn't, I, but, I, but i didn't get the sense in reading it that that any of them necessarily thought it would be forever it's no i don't think anyone thought it would be forever they were trying to get the certain things that would allow them to be men of standing uh-huh. property a, a nice used truck, mm-hmm. maybe some livestock. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely livestock. Um, they they wanted that, and they but they above all what they they a lot of them went with the idea. I'm going to buy a taxi. I'm going to buy a little business. I'm going to you know. Yeah. Ends up none of that happened. Very few of them because they, they come back and they want to be the king, and they begin to spread their money around and blow their away. money on on. They get they get this narcotic. A, a boost right. from being the guy who pays right. for the beer in the plaza all night and all the girls want to talk to him. Right, which is exactly what would have gotten them caught as drug dealers here. Exactly. They, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't party here. They wait to spend their money and, back and home. And that was the interesting thing. They're all on salary. They're all just, they don't live with anything. They're sleeping on the floor. Yeah. You got a dispatch. They get paid. Right. They move the product. And very few of them are on the dope. If no, any uh, heroin is still a, uh, a very stigmatized drug in, in the United, in, in Mexico. People are on cocaine. People use meth because a lot of that is 
been created or stayed in the country before coming here. And marijuana is uh, smoked Everywhere, by yeah. like, relatively few folks. Oh, uh, really? Kinda, yeah. I, I, I mean, marijuana is still viewed as kind of like a scuzzy, almost like a child molester. El marijuano yeah. is kind of like a oh, child really? molester. Yeah. But, but the scuzziest of all is certainly heroin. I knew... I heard of one guy getting addicted to his own product. Everybody else was just into alcohol, and and they were also into sending their money back constantly because they never want to get busted with lots of money. Right, and some of these dopers were like kind of like the guys. Oh no, of course. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing about this. These guys are not cartel killers. Right. This system works because it channels that desire of this young kid who's got nothing, who's got these cheap pair of jeans and no girl will talk to him. Yeah. It channels that desire into to become the guy or, or a guy of respect. Yeah. Right? Anybody can use this system. You don't have to... Uh, a, a cartel is like a GM. Right. You gotta kill somebody. Like, and and yeah. also you gotta and it's really... It's a very tough way to make a living, really, if you're at the bottom. And so these guys are seeing this system like, hell yeah, yeah. I'll do that. Cash. And, and the other thing is, had there been another big job uh, that that was kind of became popular in that area. These guys might all be landscapers in Dallas. Mm-hmm. You know, it just so happened that in this one village where everybody does this, you know, it's such a common thing. As I said, everybody does the same job. Yeah, that in this one village, you get guys who are making money selling heroin, and everybody see a whole generation, probably really two generations of guys, grow up in that town, uh, seeing this as the way out. Uh, and and it's it's an amazing. Uh, a transformation of the town, but it's a middle class transformation. It's not like people have Maseratis right. and uh, yeah. zoos. You right, know? Right. They have a better house. Right. They have a nice Dodge truck. Yeah. And you know, they have more money to spread around, but not like their Chapo Guzman or something. Right, right. You know? And I and I think it was like important towards the end of the book, you sort of captured uh, you dealt a little bit with the high school sports and also about, you know, basically yeah. what really turned the tide, unfortunately uh, but I think is right. Uh, culturally, it, it, there's a racial divide implicit in yeah. in dealing with this problem because it was all of a sudden a, a middle-class white problem, whereas right. you know, crack and the old-timey heroin, there was not the attention paid because yeah, it was it's a, primarily- Yeah, it's a complicated thing because you're absolutely right. Most of the people, I would say 90-plus percent of the people getting addicted to heroin nowadays are white. They could be low-income whites in, in Appalachia. Sure. They could be Charlotte's uh, you know, nouveau riche. Uh, but whatever the case, they're, they're white. And so this has also created a new way of viewing addiction. Uh, which is good. Which is good. Yeah. Which is good. It's a, it's a way of saying, we don't, you know, we tried, this story is about isolation versus community, right? So for the longest time, we've tried, we had the silver bullet of every pain you have, we use this pill for. Uh, every addict needs to be thrown in jail. There's one way of doing everything. And now we're coming to an idea like, no, we need to add new things. And so what's happened is people are coming to view this as a disease, uh, treatment. Finally. Is necessary, finally, after many years. These and are red states. Where and that's where, like, that's where it's most interesting right. to watch, yeah, to see how red it was states, all tough love, jail it, culture. Exactly, and that's where it, where tough on crime had been political dogma. Right. No one questioned it. If you questioned it, someone to your right was going to out-tough you on crime. Right. You know? And now, in, for example, in northern Kentucky, where I've spent a lot of time, it's just south of Cincinnati, guys are, you, can, you cannot get elected in these counties as a Democrat, but you also cannot get elected as a Republican who wants to be just throw away the key kind of the old style. Well, they have heroin courts now. Exactly, right. And they have, and they have a whole new change, like people are coming to understand. And it's really like kind of, you know people now. Who are addicted? Well, that's the pastor's a, that's, son, the football. Right. But that took a lot. Right. You know, you you, you talk about it in the book that the stigma 
still was there with heroin. That yeah. you had these parents that were like their kids died of a gunshot wound, a self-inflicted gunshot wound by accident or a heart attack. Yes. But no one was willing to say. Or died suddenly. Right. That, you know? that they were, And then they all started to find out that this tar <laughs> had gotten hold of them. You know, as a guy who's sober, you know, like it's no big mystery. Yeah. You know, you know, once you smoke that shit, you know, for the first time because some of your friend turns you on to it or or whatever, once it becomes easy. Yeah. Like dope. I mean, needles are still rough, yeah. but but I think a lot of those it starts out with smoking that shit. You know, foiling yeah. it and you know, and then the needles like that that the whole other relationship, but it seems that that really blew up too. That needles yeah. became destigmatized among a class of people that would never have thought. And that, that was the the horrifying thing to the parents. Um, when I uh, when I start when I was in the middle of this book, uh, my wife and I talked a lot about how it was going and what the response would it, to it would be. And I I we were both kind of convinced that the book would come out and die yeah. because nobody that I, nobody the parents who had lost kids or kids were addicted, n- very very few of them wanted to talk about it. It was like this silence. Everybody around the country had these kids dying, and nobody it was like the plague, but nobody wanted to talk about it. This one guy told me, you know. His kid had died. Um, he said, all around this country, there are probably millions of parents who go to bed every night in the darkness of their bedroom, holding onto a photo album, crying. And their biggest fear is that everybody else will figure out how their kid actually died. Yeah. And it's a it's a sad, tough um, image that I held. And but I but the truth was, I never, I really thought that that was the way the book was going to be. Except and received. It's like no one wanted to talk about this. I was wandering around America seeing all this shit, you know, and no one wants to talk about it. And and I would say one of the gratifying, beautiful, sweet things is that since the books come out, the opposite has happened. And I cannot tell you, it's like this amazing I go to these book signings. Uh it's a it's a beautiful grandparents come up, hold my hand, don't want to let it go, hug me, and I'm like, I, I was not expecting I was expecting I was expecting people to say, yeah, whatever, and, and let's move on, because no one gives a shit about right. this topic. Right. It's junkies, right? Right. And the truth is um, that, uh, well, I, I felt that that, that was going to happen, and it didn't. And since then, since the book came out, April of 2015, it's just been spooky, because um, it. No, I felt all alone. I felt so, I remember feeling so alone. Nobody Writing was it. talking about this, and even the parents. If you, can, I'm in the media. If you can't get parents to talk about how their kid died, you are you have lost the battle. Yeah, you, no one gives a shit. And the politicians, the politicians began to pay attention. You saw the Republican candidates. Kasich. Yeah, all these guys. But in Ohio, Christie he, he and passed legislation. Yeah, Kasich. Kasich was really great with with. He passed uh, um, um, Medicare, Universal Medicare, uh, uh, in, in opposition. From uh, against the opposition of his of his own party's Cong- uh, state legislature, to uh, and largely to provide a treatment for every Ohioan, basically. Um, I thought that was a pretty gutsy thing thing to do. But it was it was rare the politician wanted to talk about this because the parents were were mortified. But now what you're seeing, and I know it must be so hard for these parents, and my I, I feel for them when they do this. But they put in their obituary the truth. Like they'll say he died, and then at the bottom he lost his uh, battle with addiction, with heroin. Remembered parents, la la la, that kind of thing. I put those up on Facebook now whenever I see them because I know how um, devastating. First of all, just to lose a child, I have a child of my own, and I just don't know how you go on, honestly. But also to lose it to something so fucking shitty as as black tar heroin or pills or this kind of addiction, uh, and that what that means is once when they've died, it means you really have been going through five years of torture. 
of the kid ending up in jail. Oh yeah, you know, stealing who, from you, stealing from the grandmother, all that stuff. And well, and, and you did amazing research with the the people that were sort of like so many different disciplines and areas of of government and law enforcement. You know, from the state coroner's office to the city coroner's office to the uh, to the right. DEA to uh, the courts right. themselves. Yeah, that to and that was the other thing about you know that given we live in this culture where everything is so fucking interconnected it's so porous there's no boundaries you yeah. know transparency is almost compulsive that all these things could be going on simultaneously with no fucking communication at all, all right. to, to put it all together but, and it takes a reporter to do that but see that's the thing this is all about it's uh, the, the drug itself is kind of like the 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 symbol or the barometer of our times, you know, our our own isolation. Heroin yeah. is the most isolating, the most isolating drug. One of the things I noticed as I was doing the story was I was in the middle of it. And I was realizing, you know, the only people I'm talking to are people with making uh, with a government paycheck, government government workers. This at a time when we have done our utmost to laugh at government, to destroy government, to call government the problem. Here we are, the thin line between us and complete opiate breakdown are coroners, public health nurses, ER docs from county hospitals, cops, DEA, prosecutors, jailers, courts, etc. We have come from a, a, a time, the last 35 years, we have exalted the public sector, the private sector. We have said, oh, Wall Street, thank God. You know, you, you are wonderful. You're so efficient. Private sector is so efficient. So, God. so power job creating and government, you're a bunch of dunderheads. You're a bunch of losers. You're a bunch of Bloated bureaucracy. Yeah. all this kind of stuff. And we don't want, and you know, uh, crucially and all that, uh, we don't want to pay taxes. That helps us allow, uh, allows us to understand, to, to rationalize how we don't want to pay taxes. Well, because they're a bunch of incompetence in government. And, and the truth is, this is a, the story of, of the private sector capitalism gone completely awry where they um, killed the towns exactly all the all the profits go to private companies the private sector all the causes complete you know socialized no corporate responsibility none whatsoever and and at the same time all the costs are borne by jails er's coroners etc etc you can you can name them and, and and to me it felt like that this was also the bigger story that this that we had we had spent 35 years of saying government was the problem the private sector we should exalt it all these people make so much money uh, i think basically donald trump is the outgrowth of that of that yeah. of that attitude he's doesn't matter what he says he's made a lot of money yeah. right i think i don't know he's the equivalent and and, exactly. and it's and what's interesting about that and i talked about it a little bit on this podcast is that the people that blindly vote for them are the people that are angry and hopeless and yeah. feel like their way of life is diminishing. The same people that, that get strung out at, in the lower class on oxys and who are filled with nothing but hate for themselves and for a system that's gotten away from them. Yes. And he somehow, because of his tone, right. they feel like he speaks for them. And I, I really think I would love to see a, 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 um, a survey of how many people who support Donald Trump have opiate addiction in their family. Not because it... it Battles their brain. That's not what I mean. It means what I mean is their their American dream has collapsed. How much part of that is opiate addiction? Because it it has a way of destroying, you know, any brightness in your life. Well, and yeah. Even, or, or your kid is addicted, or it, your cousin right. is addicted. And or it, it, well, if it's not the middle class and the lower class, it's yeah. like it it is a an indicator of despair. Yes, and and also, but also kind of yeah, an indicator, and also some, of course, uh, the cause of it sometimes too. Sure. Because once you get no, involved yeah, in it, yeah, no, yeah, once yeah. you get involved in it, it 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 
it's not the addict who who gets addicted. It's the entire family. It's the grandmother and the the uncles. And well, I thought it was everybody. fairly. Uh, you know, I was crying at the end because I'm very sensitive to this stuff after spending 17 years of my life in meetings and 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 being wired to understand that struggle and the sensitivity to it. That right. you know that you know now you have. Uh, a sort of re-engagement with responsible pain management that is multidisciplinary, you know, certainly within the, within the Veterans Administration and within some of the original pain management uh, ideas, yeah. you know, around social work, psychology, uh, diet, um, exercise, you know, all that stuff, which was essential. Right. And still you have a hard time getting insurance companies to pay for that stuff. Right. And, and then, uh, you know, alongside of that, you've got in Ohio – there's a rebuilding going on, yeah. and that and that some of the junkies are, are getting help, and, and yes. they're they're coming back to the town center. Right. There's another story. Not that the the first story doesn't exist anymore. It's just that it's no longer monopolizes the town. And I went back to Portsmouth. I, I you know when I was writing the book, I was very conscious of the fact that I did not want to write a book that was about despair and destruction and degradation and end of story. I, I, you can't write a story like that. I didn't, wouldn't want to read it myself if I wrote it. And so I was on. I'm very interested in learning or seeing where a hopeful sign yeah. might be. But I'm a reporter. I don't write for Hallmark cards. I don't right. write for Chamber of Commerce. Right. So I needed to find something that was real. And so it was in in Portsmouth that was surprising enough the place where I found it because if you look on the surface, Port, Portsmouth looks pretty bombed out. You know, yeah. there's still hookers by the tracks. Yeah. A lot of abandoned buildings. Not much community there. But as I went back, I went to their, uh, went to Portsmouth, Ohio six times. Great town. Yeah. I met some fantastic, uh, really generous uh, people when I was there. And um, th- what 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 they showed me, or what I, what I discovered, was that there was finally, once you separate supply from the addict, once you cut down on those pill mills and well, get they, rid of them. And legislation did that. And the legislation did that. Then, of course, the DEA comes yeah. in and shuts them all down right. and prosecutes these guys. They're all in, most of them are in prison now. You get breathing room. Mm-hmm. The addict doesn't have the dope right in his face, yeah. you know, and has a chance. And when you get that, more and more people, by the time I was there, the last time I was there, it was uh, 2,000 people were in recovery for opiate addiction in Portsmouth, Ohio. That's about the 10th of the town. Shows you how widespread it was. That does not mean that there are great jobs to be had in Portsmouth yet, or there are is not a lot of addicts still, or there's not a lot of heroin. There's, it just means that there's not the, 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 as one woman put it, it just means that it's the story of, uh, the of let's get high all day, steal the copper wire and get high all day is not the only narrative in town anymore. And and you're seeing people kind of break away from... from it, it seems to me the town believed the dependency dogma that everyone else was trying to shove down its throat, that, that Wall Street and Chicago University of Chicago Economic School said, we are no longer a country of manufacturing and we're a country of financial services. And Portsmouth bought that and let all those jobs go. And just and and spent thirty years bickering and recalling and all kinds of crap, and now it seems to me the town has done the, the crucial first step, which is to take control of its own future and not believe the bullshit. And that's why on a, the, on, a on a town government, town government, but also that's why I love the story, man. This has brought tears to my eyes. The shoelace factory. It's the shoelace factory, man. That 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 before they would just say. You know, a town wanted, a, a business was going, oh, well, okay, what can we do? What was us? You know, the fatalism was drenching in the yeah. town. And this time, the last, this was the largest shoelace manufacturer in America in its heyday. Yeah. Still a very competent and, and well-run company up to the point when certain of the family that owned it took over and then began to run down uh, downhill. 
the guys, folks in town, just common, ordinary schmoes, like an insurance agent, a lawyer, construction contractor, they say, no, we're not, we cannot allow this to happen anymore. You know, damn it. And so they pool their money and they buy it out of bankruptcy and they employ all these people. And all of a sudden that town has like an example of how not to be an addict. How not right, to be right, right. how not to be like fatalistic and, and, and inert and beaten down. You have this and now they're they're exporting the shoelaces to Taiwan and to Mexico and Italy and places like that. And they've got their fantastic company. And Mitchell it's, Lace? It's, it's called, called Mitchell Lace. Yeah. But but they changed the name when they out of bankruptcy to yeah. Soul Choice. Uh-huh. Um but it, that was almost part of, I, I didn't think of that at first as a heroin story, but really it is. You know, it's like you saying as a community, we're done taking the, 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 the crap that tells us that, that everything that we do is, is, is pointless or, 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 or history, uh, uh, yesterday's news, and, and might, might as well let go of it. And we're, we're about ready now to take control of our own life, which is opposite of what an addict does, right? right. An addict kind of relinquishes all all control to the enslavement to the to the to the to the molecule yeah, to and, the dope and also it's easy to be cynical like that well that's the horrible part about this story is that you know when you know crack and heroin and cocaine and a lot of that stuff you know and not so much cocaine because of where that went but certainly crack and the original heroin when it was kept in the lower classes or in the black yeah. communities there was a cynicism and a, and an, uh, a cultural racism around like who gives a shit right so now like even and it took a decade for this awareness to come right because all of a sudden you know and even the wealthy who were losing people were unwilling to get engaged but a lot of see this a lot this had we paid attention to our great canaries in the in our coal mine in the story which is Appalachia we would have noticed this years and years ago and really done some but we're used to as a culture it's it's low-income whites no right. one gives a damn about right. Appalachia right? right and and Rust Belt places those right. they lost they're losers right right, right. they so just they, they, this they, is evolution exactly right and so why do we care about them well we had we paid attention we might have spared the rest of the country this had we have we ratcheted back significantly on how liberally we prescribe these pills which is the whole problem I mean this is the first the first uh, thing where where uh, the first drug scourge that doesn't start with street mafias and drug dealers that kind but, of but thing, also you know. what's interesting though about this particular drug scourge is there was a there was a there was a, a, a racial component implicit in the marketing scheme is yeah. that that these Mexican these Jalisco boys were were told they from never the top sold, down right. don't sell to blacks yeah don't sell to blacks or Mexicans but what's interesting to me is uh, as well is that um, we this we would not be discussing treatment it seems to me as a as an alternative if this uh scourge had the same amount of violence associated that crack had right it doesn't seem to me like reasonable to assume that this is a this this has be is a has changed america because it's quiet yeah and it's also young silent white yes. well-adjusted kids right uh-huh and and the you know it's like football is a gateway to heroin addiction in america today that's an amazing statement but i, I believe it to be true well you've proved it a little bit in your book yeah it's exactly and all across the country you, you, you see this why because that's how you treat pain uh uh now with with these massive doses of pills and that's and how you get these guys back easier. on the field and yeah but it's it, it, it all to me this all is about how it seems to me that heroin is one of the most important uh, forces for change. Yeah. Oh no. In, in yeah. America well, today. I felt that at the end of the book, and I, you know, and it's like I couldn't put it down. And it, like, and I think it's really, <laughs> but I think it's really one of those books that will change, you know, anyone's mind, not just about drugs or about you know business or anything else, but about you know what the fuck happened to America. 
You know, midway through the book, that was my realization. This is not about dope. This is not a crime story. This is a, what we've become yeah. as Americans. We've been become so isolated. Yeah. You know, uh, consumption is the road to happiness. Right. The government is the problem. The private sector, we applaud any damn thing they do. Never send them to jail for any, anything, apparently. And heroin is the poster child for, uh, is the expression of all those values we fostered over the last 35 years. It's it's the the heroin addict is the, the, the uh, 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 a guy who gets addicted to heroin becomes narcissistic, self hyper consumer yeah. a product you know and 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 the bedroom in his mind the, exactly right of course and the bedroom is now the hallmark institution of this it's not the crack house it's not shooting gallery it's the bedroom where everyone you grew all up the parents in. exactly and all the parents thought you were safer because no one wants to go outside we have this horrible fear no one's outside no one's playing in the streets we're all terrified of what the kid could in- endure or suffer a skin knee or something mm-hmm. like that outside and so it's in, they bring them inside and it's in the it's in the bedroom where kids are 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 hiding their dope shooting up their dope and 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 dying private bedrooms are like the hallmark institution of this whole whole epidemic and it's like this it's it's this is this shows us who we become heroin kind of shows us who we become but it's also very important very important to to, to say this it's about the only issue on which republicans democrats can actually come together and find some kind of uh common ground and so maybe within heroin there is some uh optimism or positivity maybe as one woman said maybe at the end if we become more communally minded if we don't applaud the private sector everything uh everything they do and all this maybe in the end and maybe if we raise our kids with a more communal way maybe in the end we will we will uh say uh we will have heroin to thank Mm. there you go well, it was important work and it's great work. Oh, and, man, and, thanks very much. I really appreciate your uh, interest in it. Thanks yeah, a yeah. lot, man. What a great conversation. What a great book. Dark, not entirely hopeful, but there is some glimmers of hope that have to do with changing legislation, changing how we look at drug addiction, changing some laws, Progress. Progress against closed-mindedness. Make sure you vote tomorrow. And thanks again to Sam. Really enjoyed talking to him. We've got something special for you on Wednesday. If you need a little come down after the election, we're posting the special show we made a year ago called Lauren Stories. The episode has only been available for Howl Premium subscribers, but on Wednesday, you can get it right here in the WTF podcast feed. So enjoy that. All right? I'm going to play some guitar a little bit. This is the last guitar I'll play before the election. So, so what? Boomer Lee.